Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back. We appreciate you guys joining us, as you do every week here on the College Football Survivor Show. You can find us anywhere. You can find anywhere you find podcasts. You can find the College Football Survivor Show. That's me, Doug Maurice. That's Shahan Jeharaja. And you guys, you guys know how we do it by now, right? We we kick teams out of our playoff rankings, but not our rankings. Our, our the people we talk about the discussion. We kick teams out. We let teams in. We rank them, and then we deal with what's up. So this is what's up this week. And we're doing we're doing our, our regular pod kind of a day early. So we're really diving in on what I think are maybe the two most intriguing playoff contenders left. And we're going to dig in on USC and we're going to dig in on Michigan. But first, we're going to rank everybody. And first, we're going to kick people out and let people in. And this is my fault. I did not get the Twitter polls out because we're going a day early this week, Shahan. But normally we only kick out one team. And I think we're going to toss out those rules because I think as we get here toward the end of the season, we are getting very clearly defined about things. And we had 11 contenders uh, a week ago and three of them lost. And we made a big deal last week about, hey, look at us. We're kicking out Alabama and keeping Illinois. And then Illinois made us look like a bunch of chumps by going out and losing. And so first off, I think Illinois' brief tenure as a playoff contender is over. And before we even get to this Illinois-Michigan, quote, big Illinois-Michigan game this week, it's no longer that big for Illinois because not only has Illinois lost two of its last three, it has ceded control of the Big Ten West. They kind of have they went from the driver's seat to really no chance of winning the Big Ten West at this at this point. They have three losses and Illinois has to be out, right? Yeah, this is this is one of the wildest collapses in a division that I've seen in a while. Just because, like you said, they were in such control of that division. They had all the tiebreakers that felt like they needed and just for them to lose the games that they lost, I, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, to lose to to one of the better teams in the conference, somebody standing up and getting you. But, you know, Purdue last week, who's not playing very well at all. And then Michigan State is really the one that's that's pretty unforgivable with the way that Michigan State's playing right now. That is that is just unbelievably bad. And now they head into a game at Michigan where they're going to fall a game behind a lot of other teams in the standings. Uh, and then they go on the road against Northwestern. So uh, it just, this is unbelievable. If you told me a couple weeks ago that Illinois was not going to be in the big 10 championship game, I would not have understood the path to get there, but now they have losses by the way to Indiana, Michigan state and Purdue. That uh, What is that? Like this, yeah. this is, this is not good. And I feel like, I feel like stuff like that makes you almost reevaluate what they even accomplished in the first place when they're losing games that badly. Well, I mean, it turns out, again, they're they're over under win total before the season was four and a half and they're seven and three. So it's a good solid year, but it's going to be more like a good solid eight and four year that just the way it unfolded. It gave us a bit of a misperception of like, oh, my gosh, like this. Could this be 10 and two? And we knew they were almost certainly going to lose to Michigan this coming Saturday. But now, again, 
Iowa, believe it or not, controls its own destiny. If Iowa wins its last two games against Minnesota and Nebraska, Iowa is the Big Ten West champ. Iowa is actually an underdog on the road at Minnesota this week. If Minnesota beats Iowa, then that clears a path for Purdue. Because if Iowa wins and then Purdue wins out, and Purdue is playing the two worst teams in the Big Ten to end the season in Northwestern and Indiana, then Purdue's the Big Ten West champ. Or if Minnesota beats Iowa and Purdue loses one of those two games, and then Minnesota wins its other game, then Minnesota's the Big Ten West champ. And that is 40 seconds too much of Big Ten West talk on a playoff show. So I apologize. This is a just wholly unserious division. How is this? They're, they're going to pay each of these schools $100 million to play football. And like, Illinois is going to go out there and lose to this Michigan State team in Indiana. Like, what is the point of this? Who is this for? I, I don't understand. Like, it boggles my mind. And by the way, the Big Ten, we assume that whenever they make the, the additions of USC and UCLA, that they're going to eliminate divisions. And that's going to make everybody else's life harder in the Big Ten West. I, I remember a graphic going around last year that ranked the recruiting rankings of every school in the Big Ten. And it was literally all of the East teams and then all of the West teams. And I mean, come on, come on. Is, is this this might be the worst division in in all of Power Five college football. And that is saying something. And it, and it is going to end in 2024 when UCLA and USC join. They're going to reshuffle things and it's either going to be no divisions and just 16 teams all in one grouping or it'll be some kind of pod system. But it won't be this the, like the free lunch is ending for the Big Ten West. And the thing that's been a topic a little bit that I've been thinking about is if the Big Ten had done this season, what the Pac-12 did in May, which is like, hey, no, we're doing this playoff thing. Ah, that's scrap divisions right now that the Pac-12 is in a situation they scheduled based on divisions. And then they just said, nope, we're just taking the two best teams. If that was the case, and again, it's not that fanciful, Shahan, because the Pac-12 and the Big Ten often think the same way. Just if the Big Ten had done what the Pac-12 did, Ohio State-Michigan as the Big Ten championship game would be locked in right now. We would know it now with two weeks left in the regular season that you're getting an Ohio State-Michigan doubleheader. They're so far ahead of everybody else. But that's so that's not the deal. But the bottom line is Illinois, you kind of I mean, you blew it. But maybe you just never work quite that anyway. But we will talk about Illinois a little bit more later on in the show because we are going to talk about Michigan. And Illinois is playing Michigan this week. But usually that's where we stop with only kicking out one team. But I don't want to stop. Is it appropriate for us to continue the Booten discussion, Shahan? I think it has to be. All right, so let's talk about UCLA because they blew it too. Like this is again, this is this whole, which is this is how college football works. We know that, but man, couldn't we have gotten to USC UCLA this week with both of them with one loss, with the winner grabbing a Pac-12 championship game spot and with the winner continuing to be on track very legitimately. I'd still think that a Pac-1 loss Pac-12 champ is almost guaranteed almost guaranteed a spot that UCLA controlled its destiny and it loses to Arizona. And now with two losses, this, and we'll talk about this UCLA USC game. See, this is what we thought we we're going to do. If, I mean, th this would be an even better podcast. Thanks. Thanks chip and Brett. You ruined our podcast. Like we're going to talk about Illinois, Michigan and UCLA USC anyway, but Illinois and UCLA losing took the air out of those games a little bit. So UCLA have two losses now. And again, it's going to be a great year for what you thought UCLA was. But how did they lose that game last week, Sean? 
Yeah, I, I will say I I've been on Arizona early. I thought that they were a much improved team, but it's not the sort of improved team that should be beating a top. 15 team in the country. I, I think that that's fair to say. And, uh, you know, so just tremendous, tremendous disappointment for UCLA. Uh, you know, I've been beating the drum of that UCLA should be ranked potentially higher than USC so far, because I think that what they've done is probably more impressive than what USC's done to this point. But, uh, obviously losing this game puts that to rest. It's not going to happen. It's, this is one of those games too, where you're just like, how did this happen? Like, because, UCLA's offense did their thing. They, they had 465 yeah. yards. Zach Charbonnet had three touchdowns and their defense was just that bad. They allowed 436 yards of their own 10.8 yards per pass attempt, by the way, just unbelievable. And Arizona has a good quarterback in Jaden Delora. They have good receivers. Jacob Cowing is somebody who I've been, you know, talking up since he was back at UTEP, but like, UCLA wanted to play in the college football playoff. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that shouldn't, Jaden Delora being on the other side of the field shouldn't be like, oh no, we're screwed. That, that's just, you know, and so we're, I'm sure we're going to get to this third team as well, but this means that the Pac 12 goes from probably having three legitimate contenders for the college football playoff to now there's one. And I would argue it's probably the weakest one left. Yeah, but but it's just I mean it's just numbers because Oregon also lost. And this was the a situation where it's it's funny as much as we have all talked about the Bo Nix experience this year. Michael Penix is like the turbocharged Bo Nix experience because Michael Penix the Washington quarterback is spectacular. He leads the nation in passing yards per game, but then it also just feels like man, he might be right on the edge of like having a play that, that killed you. And he had a play that like killed Washington against Oregon and then it didn't matter. And Washington won anyway. So Washington 37 to 34 beats Oregon. And this is where it comes back, Shahan. And this is where the 12 team playoff is going to open things up again. Oregon had worked really hard to overcome the season opening blowout loss to Georgia. And I certainly had been hearing from some college football fans that are like, hey, like, I thought a blowout loss was disqualifying for you, right? Like, how come they're allowed to sort of crawl back? And they, again, very much had absolutely reached the point where if they were a one-loss Pac-12 champ, they were going to be in because I think they had proven that. But now what comes into play is you you lose all wiggle room, right, that it's you can overcome an opening non-conference loss against a great opponent, but when you have two losses, it's two losses. So like now you're not going to be able to say, but remember, like we lost a close game to the leading passer in the nation and we got blown out by number one. Like those are those are two pretty good losses, but it's still two losses. So that's the thing in the end, right? It's not that Georgia eliminated them. It's that Georgia eliminated them from being able to lose any other game. So you get in a situation where they play a shootout. Washington is capable of this. Washington is not as consistent as Oregon, but Washington's peak because Michael Penix is so dynamic and can throw it the way he does. Washington's peak can be really high. And so, so the result is Oregon takes a second loss. And I still think Oregon is really good in a lot of ways, but they're not going to make the playoff. Right, right. And, you know, now it's an interesting situation of how they finish up. They play Utah this upcoming week. They're at Oregon State, who's really good in two weeks. So they have a pretty tough path just to make the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, you know, obviously, I think that we 
assume at this point, and we might be wrong, that USC is going to be the other team on the other side of that. But, uh, you know, it's it's a, an interesting situation. It's a tough situation. I think one thing that, that we do have to say is, look, if Georgia had scheduled, sorry, if Oregon had scheduled anybody other than Georgia in the country, right? If they, if they had scheduled freaking, you know, UC Davis instead, well, okay, then they'd be playing two FCS teams. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. No, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. They, they'd they still be in the playoff mix. And so they were penalized for scheduling a good game. And I don't love that. I, I don't especially think that that's good for the sport to say, why did you play this game that was good at the beginning of the season? And that's one thing where I think that, yes, the the – college football playoff expanding i think will be better for that it'll incentivize hey oregon if you go and you just have that kind of day against georgia it's not disqualifying it doesn't mean that your entire season is over and and and, you know look losing 49 to 3 to georgia did not mean that oregon season was over but it meant that their job was close to impossible and unfortunately they weren't able to walk the path and now oregon's not going to be a legitimate college football playoff contender this game, this Utah-Oregon game on Saturday, I think it's possible This these are two of the eight best teams in the country, maybe two of the six best teams in the country, and both of them opened the season by going on the road to SEC country, and they both lost. And listen, Utah losing at Florida is different than Oregon losing in Atlanta to the defending national champs. But still, that's a stretch by Utah to go do that. If they both had played Cal Poly, they both would have one loss right now. And this game, this might be, this would be the game of the weekend because they're all, they would both be ranked higher. And it would absolutely be, it'd be two one-loss teams where Oregon has a close loss to Washington and Utah has a competitive loss to UCLA. Utah, as it stands at eight and two, Utah is 10th in the AP poll and Oregon is 12th in the AP poll. And again, we're recording this before the playoff rankings get released, but you guys get the gist. The only two lost teams ahead of them are the SEC teams or LSU and Alabama. And this would be a play-in game for the Pac-12 championship where both of them would, I think, be in control of their own destiny, where if they win out, they're in the playoff. And instead, they went to the South. They went, I don't know if you've seen a map lately, but- no. They're way up in uh, like an American map. There's a thing. It's like there's a Florida and like there's like a thing that hangs off the bottom. Right. That's on one corner. And then way up at the other corner. I, I thought that was Texas. Uh, you know, it might be Texas. Everything's Texas, yeah. isn't it? So they go from one that they went from the top corner all the way across to the bottom corner. I don't know how far that is, like maybe 20,000 miles. They might have gone. <laughs> and the result is they both go there to lose. They both go to lose, and if they had just stayed home and won, they'd still be in the playoff race. And so, again, I love those games. You love those games. We talked about the games in the preseason, but the Pac-12 is good enough. If your conference stinks, you need to to buff yourself up out of conference. The Pac-12 is good enough this year with five or six really good teams that they didn't need to do that, as it turns out. And the result is they shot themselves in the foot with those week one losses, and here they are, no wiggle room, and they're going to play a great, fun game, but they're both already out. So, so, but how does how does body clock factor into this? Do do they get to eliminate some of those losses because of their body clock or something? I I, I don't know how this works. No, I mean, what is it like? It's eight or nine hours difference. So, I mean, I do think the body clock. As as Olivia Newton John sang back in the day, the great, the late Olivia Newton John. 
I want to see your uh, body clock, I think. Let's get physical. Let me hear your body clock is how that went. So she knew it back then. Body clocks matter. Body clocks really matter. She knew. I have no body clock. I'm jet lagged constantly because like I'll go to bed at like 930 one night and then I'll go to bed at 330 in the morning. The next night, do you keep a nice routine? Oh, absolutely not. No, uh, my my wife having a real job uh, it, it, that helps because then she's like, hey, why aren't you up as yet? But uh, no, other than that, well, because the thing is, too, during football season, I mean, I have to be up till like two in the morning on Saturdays, right? Like that's just part of the gig. And so that just immediately throws everything else out of the window that. And so, no, I am on a very bad schedule. And most things that you read are like, hey, if you want to stay alive for a long time, have a routine, because if you don't have a routine, you're not going to make it. And then it's like, but but I'm a part of college football. I can't. I'm not allowed to like what they keep having games that the game ends at 1230 or one o'clock in the morning. And then you have to work after that. So it always makes me mad when I see like medical <laughs> things about what are the healthiest things you can do for your body? Go to bed at the same time every night. And I, was, I say, well, I can't. I'm not allowed to. Can you imagine if you told your bosses at CBS Sports like, listen, I try to be in bed by 10. <laughs> I know it's only the first quarter of the USC game, but my body clock, Shahan's body clock comes first. I, I, I got to say, though, you know, it it is funny because. I obviously I am somebody who tries to be a completionist when it comes to college football. I try to pay attention to everything, watch everything that I can. And like, I, I, I do understand why East Coast college football writers just don't watch the Pac-12 because like, holy crap, it does get late. It gets late out there whenever you're trying to put uh, whenever you're trying to stay up for the USC or Oregon State or whatever games. And you have to be really committed and I mostly am, but sometimes I'm not. But, uh, you know, I all of us are just doing the best we can. That's the, the, the motto of this podcast. Well, it's sometimes we do the best we can. So UCLA and Oregon, unfortunately, it's not our fault. We don't want to do this, but they're out. We have to kick them out. So we have to kick out everybody that lost last week because – now, listen, we have a two-loss team that's staying in because we see their path. But the only the only conference that can get a two-loss champion is the SEC. Nobody else. There's not enough chaos. There's too many people lying in wait. So we're kicking out three teams this week. So we had 11 last week. We're kicking out Illinois, UCLA, and Oregon. That brings us down to eight. And that brings us to the other team that we have talked about a ton – and I think we have to let in this week. And again, I apologize. I didn't get the vote out. But I think we have to put in UNC, North Carolina, because they have a chance to be a one-loss Power 5 champ. And I, I think like the path for them making the playoff is very narrow. But as these other teams lose, it, it opens up a tiny bit. And I think it exists enough that here as we get ready for – the 11th game of the season for all these teams, I think North Carolina has to be on our radar and in this discussion. So I would like to put them in finally. Do you agree? Do you agree with that idea? I do. There have been two conference championship games that have been clinched to this point. The SEC championship game will have Georgia versus LSU, both teams who are in our discussion and the ACC championship game will have Clemson versus North Carolina. And I think both of those teams for clinching this early, it's, already, it's only November 15th and they're already in. Uh, I think they deserve to be in as well. And 
let me let's do a quick conversation on this because I will tell people that on our the Monday Buckeye Talk show that I also co-host, we uh, did a long discussion, a long Heisman discussion there, and we did that on Ohio State podcast because C.J. Stroud, the Ohio State quarterback, is right in the middle of it. In fact, he's at the front of the Heisman race at this point. He's the the heavy favorite, but I do think Drake May, the North Carolina quarterback, because of the raw numbers. Because of, I think, the the growing interest in him as an NFL draft prospect, and he's only a second-year guy, so it's a year away, and the fact that he will be on the stage, I just think you almost have to be on the stage on conference championship weekend to have a chance to win the Heisman, and you and I had a had an in-depth Heisman discussion a couple weeks ago. I think the way things have shaken out, there was a, Hendon Hooker is a very good player, but he's not playing on conference championship weekend. And when you start doing raw stats, North Carolina is not, you know, again, their their path to the playoff is minuscule. But do you think Drake May is a is a legit Heisman contender that if things go a certain way with some of the other favorites, whether it's C.J. Stroud or Blake Corum or Hendon Hooker or Caleb Williams, could you see Drake May rising up in the last three weeks of the year? No, it's a very good question. You know, I, I think that. I think that a lot of people in the country have not watched Drake May at this point, right? Like, I, th- I think that most of the country doesn't know his name as much as they should, uh, but he has been unbelievable this season. He has been the catalyst for this team making the conference championship game. And it's funny, after they lost Sam Howell to the NFL draft, you kind of thought, okay, well, it's going to be a rebuilding cycle for North Carolina. They weren't very good last year. But really, the difference between Drake May and Sam Howell has been the difference between a team that's now going to win the ACC Coastal by a mile. It's a, it's pretty incredible. And, you know, their one losses to Notre Dame. They still scored 32 points in that game. I don't think that they should feel especially bad about that game at this point. Uh, you know, and they're going to have some tough tests to close out. They still have three ACC games left, which is, uh, which is or sorry, they have, I guess, two and then the conference championship game. Um, they're going to get NC State, they're going to get Clemson, two of the best defenses in the ACC, so there's going to be opportunities for him to put up some numbers. Obviously, beating Clemson, even though it's this version of Clemson, I think will still carry some weight. And frankly, I mean, this is a different discussion. I'm still not sold at all on the C.J. Stroud-Heisman thing. That feels just so, like... That feels so Mark Ingramy. That's what it feels like to me. And so I think that there's absolutely an opportunity for somebody to rise up. It could be, uh, it could be Drake May at North Carolina. Obviously, depending on what happens in the game, could be Blake Corum at Michigan, I think has a real shot, but absolutely. I, I mean, I think that the Heisman race is completely wide open right now. I don't think anybody has made a very good case to this point. I, I- the Ohio State-Michigan game is an elimination game because for Blake Corum and C.J. Stroud, the loser of that game is not going to win the Heisman because the loser of that game is not going to be on championship weekend. And again, C.J. Stroud is a plus 150 favorite right now. He is an overwhelming favorite. I mean, that is that is a heavy favorite, but he has they have to beat Michigan. And he might have been the favorite after 11 weeks last year when he threw six touchdown passes in the first half against Michigan State in the 11th game of the year. And then Ohio State lost to Michigan. They didn't play on championship weekend. They finished fourth. So I think there's a... That he's kind of in the same spot, but if he if they beat Michigan, I think he has to play well in order for them to beat Michigan. So he has to beat Michigan, but I don't think they're going to beat Michigan with C.J. Stroud throwing for 84 yards. So then he'll have played well. They'll have won a huge game, a top three showdown, and then go to the Big Ten championship game against a lesser opponent. If he plays well there, he's the captain of the ship. Georgia doesn't really have a Heisman candidate. I guess it's Stetson Bennett. 
But I, I think that path is, is clearly there for him. But if that doesn't happen, or if Drake May throws for like six touchdowns against Clemson the first time that half the voters are watching him and they're like, oh my gosh, who's this guy? Right. And CJ Stroud even is there, but like is good, but not great in the Big Ten championship game. I, th- I think there's some pathways for Drake May because the cumulative stats, Drake May's throwing for like 110 yards per game more than CJ Stroud. Now, part of it is how they play and how often they throw, but. Cumulative stats matter to Heisman voters, Shahan. I mean, we can't pretend that's not the case. And you can dig in on a lot of other numbers, but a lot of Heisman voters aren't digging in on other numbers. They're looking at passing yards, and Drake May is, like, way ahead of of C.J. Stroud. Yeah, I mean, look, when's the last time a Heisman winner threw for 76 yards in a game, right? Like, like uh, C.J. Stroud was a hurricane. right now. It was, it was, a, it was no, very... No, it wasn't. It was just kind of windy outside. <laughs> no, it was very windy. In, in on the on the East Coast, we get actual hurricane games. That was not a hurricane. You live in game. Texas. Was- Don't say we. Don't East Coast we me. You All live right. in Texas. The University of Houston occasionally you'll get a hurricane game. Uh, no, I mean like Drake May is number two in the country in passing yards at three hundred forty-one yards per game. CJ Stroud's nineteenth, right? And and like they both play in quarterback friendly offenses and they I mean CJ Stroud has better receivers than what Drake May has outside of Josh Downs who would play at Ohio State because he's very good um but like there's there's no question that Drake May is the reason that North Carolina is in the ACC championship game and that he is the reason the only reason that they have a chance to win the ACC and so like I, I think that he absolutely deserves a case and and you know look Obviously, the passing game is a huge part of what Ohio State does, but I mean, Marvin Harrison Jr., really good. Ameka Guka, really good, right? Like, they got a lot of really good players on this offense. And by the way, when they can't run the ball, this offense doesn't look incredibly special, right? So Travion Henderson being out, Mayan Williams going out last week, like it's it's affected them in ways that I don't think that losing a teammate would affect Drake May with the way that he's playing right now. So uh, again, Big discussion for another day, but uh, but I, I feel like he absolutely has a pathway. CJ Stroud is 59th in passing attempts in the nation, which is when you're doing a cumulative stat thing, that, that's part of it. 59th. Because they don't need him to pass that much. Well, because it's they've been trying to run the ball. They run the ball like 54% of the time. They're trying to run the ball. They did play a weird game. Um, they've had some blowouts late. Drake May is 10th in the nation in passing attempts. So again, but again, like, we just saying this is a Heisman discussion. It's not it's not really a best player discussion. It's a Heisman discussion. Now, the other thing. And again, we did this for a long time on Buckeye Talk. If you want to go listen to that, a huge Heisman discussion. The one thing is that I that I believe in very strongly I actually didn't bring up on that pod very much is it's it's the story of the season. I do think the Heisman Award. It's why I love the Heisman because it's not. It's everything. It's nothing and everything all at once. And I do think it's a, a something of a story award. I don't know that Drake May is the story of the season. The guy who is the, the quarterback of the undefeated number two team and the number one team doesn't really have a Heisman candidate. And it, it is this offense, and they do have these great receivers. But it's the second year he's done it, and that is much more the story of the season. I do think that's very compelling. But Drake May is right there. If something gets a little haywire, that's all. Or if Drake May throws eight touchdown passes against Clemson kind of thing. No, I mean, it's it's interesting because the story of the season this year has been Georgia inevitability, right? Like that has been the story of the season. 
<clears throat> I don't think that anything else is really all that close, right? I, I mean, obviously, Ohio State and Michigan will play a game that has a chance to be the game of the season, of course. Uh, and that's probably going to be a huge part of this. But I mean, right now, we're kind of just waiting for somebody to get uh, to get fed to Georgia. And um, I, I don't know that Stetson Bennett has been consistently good enough to to actually win the thing. Uh, he I, I think same deal. You know, if he has a great game against uh, LSU in the SC championship game and looks awesome, then, you know, maybe that's a discussion. Uh, but, you know, the funny thing is, like you said, this is not the best player award because if it was, Bryce Young would win again. Bryce Young's really good. Really good. As we said, the Bryce Young case is, hey, I'm trying to drag this mediocre team <laughs> to a three-loss season. It's like, it's Alabama. <laughs> oh, maybe they can beat Auburn. Oh, can... So, um, no, but Alabama is still good, but Bryce Young is the reason why. So we're kicking three teams out. We're letting three one team in. And these are the nine teams. Our discussion now is the nine teams that still could make the playoff. There are nine. It is only nine. Nobody – and it – might be closer to seven because we're being a little generous with two of them. So when we come back, we'll rank them. But then we got to dive in on Michigan and USC because I have a particular category that those two fit in in this nine-team discussion. Next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Doug and Shahan back. You can be a follower of us on Twitter as long as Twitter lasts. It's CFB Survivor Show. You can read Shahan J. Haraja at CBSSports.com. Let's do our rankings right now. Again, I'm not. We're doing this before the playoff rankings. I'm not very tied up in the playoff rankings right now because I think we have a pretty clear picture of what's up and who's in position. And last week we did everybody who's in control of their own destiny. So let's just double check and see where we are if we're on the same page. Who do you have one in your rankings? Georgia. Who do you, as do I, who do you have two? Ohio State. Are you at all close to putting Michigan ahead of Ohio State? Let's get to three. Who's three? I have TCU three. Okay. So I guess the answer is no to that. Um, do you, were you close to putting TCU ahead of Ohio State? I was. I... I'm having a very hard time with these Big Ten teams right now because, frankly, you know, Ohio State, I think that the Notre Dame game is aging all right. Uh, they've been consistently less dominant than Michigan, but Michigan has truly played one football game all year. That That's it. They They have done one thing that I care about even a little bit, and... Eight and two, eight and two Penn State, eight and two Penn State is a pretty solid team. And those two no, no, losses for, sure. for Penn State are to Ohio State, Michigan. That's the game you're talking about. And in that game, they did steamroll Penn State. Yeah, no, they steamroll Penn State. I think Penn State's around 15 for me. So like, that's a nice win. It's not a crazy like, oh, my gosh, win. And that's it. I, I do not care about anything else that Michigan has done this year. And. I just feel like the resumes and the schedules at this point with TCU versus Michigan and Michigan's been more dominant. There's no question about that. But like TCU's resume is so much better, like so, so, so much better. And I it's just getting hard to ignore that. Now, them playing Michigan playing Illinois this week, they're going to steamroll Illinois, in my opinion, because I think it's also a bad matchup for Illinois and Illinois is not playing very good football right now. But it's better at nothing, right? Like this is the second best game that they're going to have played all year. So it's something at least. So maybe if they look really good and, and again, I'm waiting for them to pass the ball, but maybe they just won't have to. Um you know, if, if they look really dominant, maybe it'll be enough to kind of change to sway me a little bit. Uh, and look, frankly, 
if Michigan goes on the road and beats Ohio State, they're going to be number two and there's going to be no question about it. They're going to be ahead of TCU, no question about it. So, you know, it, it doesn't actually matter, but I just feel like at this point, at this moment in time, TCU's resume is just so much better than Michigan's. And it's cool to be dominant against this schedule, but I, I just, it's not the same to me at this point. And I feel like I've finally reached the line where I have to put TCU ahead of Michigan. And you could kind of make the same argument for TCU, Ohio State. Now, clearly, Ohio State's non-conference by playing Notre Dame instead of the three patsies Michigan played is a little bit different, but it's in this similar vein. And Michigan's win over Penn State was more dominant than Ohio State's win over Penn State because Ohio State had to take the field in Happy Valley losing. Yeah, Michigan has been better than Ohio State on the field this year. But, uh, you know, the Ohio State, you know, it, it hasn't aged the best, but right, like, they got Wisconsin, who I think is not an awful team. They, you know, they, they blitzed Michigan State like they did a couple of years ago. Like they've had those moments where you've seen, okay, this is a team that maybe can win the national championship and their schedule has just been notably better, even if it's partially just because of that Notre Dame game. But like Michigan, Michigan has the worst schedule out of all of the playoff contenders to this point. It's not the, it's not totally their fault. The non-conference piece is obviously their fault with the, with not scheduling UCLA, which by the way is a team they would have beaten. And uh, in my opinion, and uh, they'd be sitting here with a great resume if they hadn't rescheduled that UCLA game. But uh, you know, they played three of the, well, actually, actually they played a uh, bull bound UConn. And then two very bad teams. But we'll get into this more. We have, we, we've talked about the Michigan schedule a lot. I can't believe you come six and five. You come six, six and five. Congratulations five. to UConn. Um, all right. So you have Georgia, Ohio State, TCU, then Michigan four. Yeah. Yeah. And I have Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan three, TCU four. So slight disagreement there. Who do you have five? I have Tennessee five. As do I. Who do you have six? LSU. Okay. I have USC six. Who do you have seven? I have North Carolina seven. Look at you. Look at you doubting the Trojans. We'll get to them in a second. Uh, I have yeah. North Carolina nine. Who do you have eight? I have USC eight. Okay. So you're actually doubting Clemson the most. Okay. So you have Clemson nine. I have Clemson eight. You have USC eight. I have USC six. You have North Carolina seven. I have North Carolina nine. You have LSU six. I have LSU seven. Okay. So here's how I thought about those nine teams from a playoff perspective at this point. I think. The two best, the two top teams are Georgia and Ohio State. The lurking dangerous team is Tennessee. I don't think there are any illusions about what Tennessee is and isn't right now. They are an incredibly um, high-powered offense. Hendon Hooker is a great player. They have a bunch of great receivers. They do also run the ball. They are not like pure pass it. They they have a, a very balanced. Josh Heupel, that offense that he's built there is really good. And then clearly defensively, they have questions, especially in their pass defense, but they're dangerous. They're not guaranteed to get in, but the minute somebody else messes up, they are right there. So we know what they are. TCU is good, but a little iffy because they keep trying to lose and then not losing. Now, listen, teams have won national titles before by trying to lose all year and actually looking like they're going to lose and refusing to lose. So it's not like it's impossible, but we know what TCU is, which is like they are a really good kind of overachieving, tough, well-coached by Sonny Dykes football team. But man, every week it feels like this is the week that's going to get them, and it hasn't yet. So we know what that is. There's LSU, which is, we'll just deal with LSU later. If LSU beats Georgia, then we'll talk about LSU. 
If LSU doesn't beat George in the SEC championship game, LSU's not making the playoffs. So I just don't feel like we need to spend a lot of time on LSU because we know what's up. And then there's Clemson and North Carolina, who, as we said, are going to play each other in the ACC championship game. Neither of them are really good enough to be with these other teams, I think. But they're they're lingering. And if there's absolute ridiculous chaos, if TCU loses twice more, if USC loses twice more, and the Ohio State-Michigan loser gets absolutely blown out, and you're like, listen, we need a fourth team for the playoff, and there's a one-loss ACC champ sitting there like, I guess we, we'll do it. That's at least possible. So that's seven of the nine teams that I think we know what's up, and that leaves USC and Michigan who I think are the most intriguing teams to talk about right now, which is why we are going to talk about them. And let's talk about Michigan first, because I think the thing that unites them, Shahan, is that they know who they are. We know who they are. They are really locked in. It's the link. USC is Lincoln Riley University. It might be LRU. LRU, we know what LRU is. And whether it's the Norman campus or the Los Angeles campus, LRU does LRU, and they are doing it again. And that also includes AG State, which is AG State, which is Alex Grinch State, which is like, I don't know if you can't get into LRU. I guess AG State can be your safety school, but AG State has real problems. So we understand exactly what USC is, and we'll get to them in a second. But in the same way, Shahan, with what Jim Harbaugh has established now, with how Michigan plays, they know, I don't think anybody in the country knows who they are more than Michigan. And I think we know exactly who Michigan is right now. And it is a physical defensive team. Offensively, they have a dominant offensive line. They have a dominant running back in Blake Corum. And they've added a quarterback wrinkle with J.J. McCarthy who can do a little bit of a thing. And my question is, is that enough? Because they probably have to beat Ohio State or be super competitive with Ohio State and really set themselves up as an alternative in the four spot. What they did last year, they're doing it again, What they, it, but better. What they did last year was good enough to beat Ohio State at home in a little bit of iffy weather, but like there's nothing to take away from them. They earned that win 100%, and then it wasn't good enough in the playoff, and we saw that too. It's like, okay, well, this will win the Big Ten. This is not going to beat Georgia. The way they're going about it is fascinating to me. They deserve so much credit, but can it work at the highest, highest level? And I don't want this to be only a schedule discussion because I think we can kind of admit they really haven't played that many people. When you look at EPA per game defensively, they have played a couple decent defenses. EPA, Iowa's 25th, Penn State's 26th, and Maryland's 29th. I'm not saying that's great. I do think Iowa's a pretty good defensive team. I'm shocked that Maryland's 29th. That's a surprise to me. Yeah, that doesn't seem right. That actually doesn't seem right. But they they ran for 4.1 yards per carry against Iowa, 42 for 172. I think the most impressive thing, as we talked about earlier, 55 carries for 418 yards against a Penn State defense that here is ranked 26th, I think legitimately is a top 20 defense. They can really line up. They gave Ohio State a lot of trouble. 7.6 yards per carry. This is a dominant offensive line with a dominant run rushing attack in the backfield and a wrinkle QB, and they know exactly what they want to be. Is that enough? Like, could they win the national title? The first thing they have to do is beat Ohio State or be super convincing in defeat and slide in the back door. Can you? Is this enough in modern college football the way Michigan's doing it? 
So so let me let me set up first with this. I think that if Michigan loses that game, they're out. Because if I don't care how close that game is, Michigan has nothing else to point to on its schedule. So, you are probably right, but I guess the, the scenario that I would offer is say the say USC loses to UCLA and then again to Notre Dame even, right? And it's a it's a two loss Pac twelve champ, right? Say TCU implodes and and it ends up being a two loss Big Twelve champ, and then that puts and say Georgia beats LSU and say Ohio State beats Michigan close, and that puts Georgia in, Ohio State in. Tennessean probably as the lingering team. And then the fourth spot is either the ACC champ or Michigan that lost close to Ohio State. That is the back door to me. I don't think that's impossible if that's who they wound up competing against, Michigan. Anybody else, I do think they lose that battle. But that's why I'm cracking it a little bit. So, so I mean, but I think that then you are looking at the ACC champ, I think, as being a pretty strong contender against that Michigan team because they will have played, you, you know, Clemson beat Florida State, Clemson beat NC State, Clemson beat Wake Forest, uh, you know, so like, and then they would have beaten North Carolina, who is going to be a borderline top 10 team if they continue playing the way that they are. So, But, but, but I, let me I, say this. Like, we, we know what this looks like. If Michigan and Ohio State play to each other, play each other and the eye test tells you, those are two of the four best teams in the country. It is a slobber knocker. Ohio State does what it does and throws it well. Michigan does what it does and runs it well. And Ohio State kicks a field goal on the last play of the game to win 37-34. And the committee walks away and says, Michigan's one of the four best teams. They're on the road in that spot. I know they've played an easy schedule, but look how great they are. I do think that matters. I, I just think that then you are saying, wow, we got to put this team in the playoff because they lost and looked pretty good doing it. You know, that that's... That's silly to me, especially when there is a team that will be holding a conference championship that played in a conference championship game that will probably have three more or two more ranked wins than what Michigan has. Like, I I just think that some and don't get me wrong, there's going to be people in the room who feel that way. Obviously, Ward Manuel can't be one of them. He has to recuse himself during that time. But to me. We just, I think that, like you said, maybe we get into this giant slobber knocker game. But like, if you only watched the Auburn Alabama game last year and didn't pay attention to the rest of Auburn season, you'd think, "Wow, Auburn must be really good," and they weren't. What are you comparing Auburn to Michigan to ten and Michigan? I'm saying that playing against well against a quality team does not losing close neck after you've dominated against a weak schedule. After you've dominated nobody. Against the weakest schedule out of all of the contenders by a mile. No, I know, but you have dominated. But they, they can, and again, they can only play who they play. So this is not actually the main conversation. But they they made a decision to play who they play. They made a decision to play who they played as well. In three of the games. In three of the games, as you already said at the top, we've talked about the Michigan schedule. I think almost ad nauseum at this point. We get it. Let's talk about the Michigan football team. They have to beat Ohio State. I, I don't think that there's a pathway for them in if they don't beat Ohio State. But all that to say, so so let's split this up into two separate questions. One is, can they win the Big Ten and make the college football playoff? And then I think the second discussion is, can they win the national championship? So I do think that this Michigan team, with the way it's structured, with the way that they attack defensively, with the way that they run the ball, I do think they can beat Ohio State and win the Big Ten. I do. You know, I I think that it's taken me a while to get there because I'm distracted by what they can't do. But I have to give more credit to what they can do. They are one of the best running teams in the country. And like you said, they've done it 
against really good defenses. Penn State is an outstanding defense, like you said, that I think probably rates closer to 15 or 20 in the country than the 25 that they are in EPA per play. And they ran all over Penn State. I I think it was really eye-opening to me to see Penn State defend Ohio State and, and see them really shut down the running game and do a great job and realize, oh, Michigan bowled over them that made them look like nothing and you know I, I think that that's i think that's something that they can do i think that that's a that's a potential thing that they might be able to do in a situation against ohio state now to get to the second part of that question i hate the georgia matchup again i i don't know that's something has fundamentally changed about that matchup and that matchup was a blowout last year one one of the bigger blowouts that we've had in a couple of years in the playoff frankly and I don't know if that would change in that specific matchup. Now, let's say hypothetically Michigan's the two seed, Georgia's the one seed, and Georgia plays somebody who upsets them. Well, then, yeah, then I think that Michigan can beat anybody else. I I absolutely think they can beat anybody else. I just don't think they have any shot against Georgia just because of matchups, because I think Georgia can take away the run game with basically their base front and then, you know, and obviously they can, you know, they can man up uh, the Michigan receivers because I think they have talented enough defensive backs to do it and dedicate even more help to the box if they really wanted to. So I, I think that Georgia is just a horrible matchup for a team that wants to run over you. Uh, but anybody else I think they could beat, right? Like I, 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 you know, somebody put up a poll the other day kind of asking, hey, do you think that TCU can win the national championship? And it's like, I don't think they can beat specifically Georgia. <laughs> I think they can beat other teams, but I don't think they can beat Georgia. That's kind of where I'm at with a lot of teams right now. Uh, and but and I think that Michigan is certainly a team that matches up very poorly against Georgia. Now, obviously, we'd have to. I'd be curious about a Georgia Ohio State matchup, similar deal because of matchups. No, we're not talking about we're not talking about Georgia Ohio State. We have plenty of time for Georgia Ohio State. Right, right. But uh, but you know, so I that's my issue is, is I don't know if Michigan is fundamentally different enough from what they were last year to be able to spread the field out against Georgia and make things difficult for that defense. So I think that's right. Mostly Um, it it is, you have to give Michigan so much credit for what they do on both sides of the ball, though EPA per game offensively, their third defensively, their seventh. And, and one of the things that Jim Harbaugh said at the big 10 meetings in the summer was he thought this defense could be as good or better than a year ago because he said, sometimes I've seen defenses lose superstars like Aiden Hutchinson and David Ajabo and Dax Hill. And then all those other guys sort of unite and say, hey, maybe we don't have the superstars, but we want to show how good we are. We've been waiting our turn. And it's like, man, coach speak, come on. It's kind of happening. Like to you have to acknowledge that the way again they, they don't have guys quite like that. Mozzie Smith is really good on the uh, defensive tackle. Mike Morris is has a bunch of sacks on the edge. DJ Turner and Will Johnson that they have like four corners they they really believe in. Junior Colson's a really good linebacker. They have a lot of really good players. They don't have a guy who's going to be the number two pick in the draft next year. But collectively the defense and again losing the coordinator, but they keep the style. They hired Jesse Mentor. They almost hired Jesse Mentor before when they hired Mike McDonald. It stays in the family. How they go about it. You have to give this defense so much credit. And again, who have they played is a big question. 
They're going to, I hope Chase Brown plays for Illinois. He got hurt at the end of last week's game in the final minutes. It's a, it's a leg injury. Brett Bielema has been saying it feels like he's on track. I hope he plays because they, Michigan's defense has dominated people. Talking about like they've dominated people. They, they haven't faced a great back, right? So you wonder what that's going to look like. Man, I, I mean, and Illinois defensively, we're talking about EPA per game defensively. Michigan's played a couple defenses in the 20s. Illinois is two. So again, I think that's more statistical than than maybe it should be. Are they actually the second best defense in the country? No. But this is going to be, to the schedule point, the toughest test that Michigan's had, right? So I hope we see the best version of Illinois. But then offensively, they are in the nation. They lead, um, and again, like well, defensively, real quick, like all the stats, they like first in the nation in scoring defense, first in the nation in, in giving up the fewest rushing yards, first in the nation in giving up the fewest first downs. Like they're first in everything defensively because they haven't really faced anybody who can test them. Offensively, they're 95th in the nation in passing yards per game. They're fourth in the nation in rushing yards per game. And two of the three teams ahead of them are service academies. So they run it for 251. They throw it for 209. You watch them. This is what happens every play. The offensive line gets a push so that Blake Corum doesn't get hit until he's three yards past the line of scrimmage. And then Blake Corum gets hit and then he moves the pile another three yards himself. He moves the pile more than any running back I've seen. I don't know how he does it. He is not a gigantic guy, but he the offensive line and that back in concert, they get six yards almost at will. And Against Georgia, no, but they are so good at it. And again, the belief that you don't have to run the ball well for play action passes to work, that's been proven. That's true. Just, you know, you fake a hand after the running back and the linebacker bites most of the time, even if you can't run. But I think they run play action pass better than any team in the country because their run game is so dominant. And then J.J. McCarthy under center, boom, play action. And there's a guy down the seam. There's a guy open. He, he'll hit a 20-yard throw on you. And man, when it works, Shahan, I get it. They have not really been tested. But when what they do is working, it is beautiful to watch. And I they've had some halves where they struggled. They struggled with, with Rutgers for a half. But they wear you down doing what they know they want to do. And I have a lot of respect for it. And short of Georgia, it's fascinating to me that's like, yep, that is a way to win college football games in 2022. And I do think they're a little bit more dangerous in the passing game because the receivers are healthier than they were a year ago. And J.J. McCarthy is better than Cade McNamara. They're really good. Yeah, I, I really wish that we had just one game, one, one freaking game all season long that we had seen J.J. McCarthy, like, like where we had seen Michigan just say, all right, we know that we can win a game like this, but we need to see J.J. McCarthy just throw the ball. And they, they did that a little bit against Indiana. He threw for 300 yards, but like he threw 17 passes last week against Nebraska. It was a 34 to three victory. That that doesn't tell me anything. That doesn't tell me anything about how they've changed or how they can be different or how they can be more dynamic. And like you said, their, their wide receiver group is better by, by a decent margin than last year, but we haven't gotten a chance to see it. This, this, they have not done in the passing game, hardly anything this year that they couldn't have done with Cade McNamara. Now, in the running game, right? I, I, we've seen games where uh, JJ McCarthy against Penn State rushed for 57 yards, right? So, so like that's mattered. That's definitely mattered. But 
I just want to see one game where J.J. McCarthy looks like one of the best players on this offense. Right now, if I had to rank all the players, like J.J. McCarthy's been like the 11th most important player on offense. He has just like not been a factor at all. I, I would say that their wide receiver blocking is as important as what J.J. McCarthy's done for this team this year. But I do think you can see what might be in there. I don't think he's the 11th best. He might be the 11th most important. And there's this bubbling up of like, hmm, like if they need it, if they really needed it. If they're going to win the national championship, I'd like a little more than some bubbles. I'd like to see a whole, I, I don't know what the end of this metaphor is, but whatever the fully formed version of bubbles are, I would like to see that for Michigan, for me to think that they can do it. And it just feels like wasted opportunities from my perspective because they know that they're going to win these games with the way that with the schedule that they've had and the way that they've been able to run on anybody. So it feels like it, it, it feels like they've had this whole season to be able to build up uh, JJ McCarthy, not just from an efficiency perspective, but like they've protected him just continuously. They've protected him. And I need to see some unprotected J.J. McCarthy. I need to see J.J. McCarthy tossing the ball around the field to just see if he can do it. And maybe they don't think he can, which is another issue, but then I don't think that they're different than they were last season. He was a five-star recruit, which is not everything. Cool, play but like it. Play no, like it. I know, it. but I... C.J. Shroud wasn't. He's playing like he is. I, I do think that the last two years, Jim Harbaugh and that staff... With Matt Weiss and Sharon Moore calling the plays on offense now, um, taking over for Josh Gaddis, and with again what they've done defensively when they revamped the coaching staff before last season, I just think they are incredibly well coached, and that starts at the top. And I certainly have been a Jim Harbaugh critic in the past, but I think I have a faith now in them because I was kind of like all year last year, I was like, "What are they doing? Why don't they play JJ McCarthy more?" And they manage. They got as far as they could get last year. Right, that they like to a semi to into the beat Ohio State into the playoff, a semifinal where you can't hang with the national champs. That was peak Michigan a year ago. I do think maybe just because they've been there before, they're still doing it the same way. I just think because they've climbed the mountain, maybe now they can climb a little bit higher. Now, what does that mean? I don't know, but I almost am giving them the benefit of the doubt of like what you're saying. Why haven't they done it? It's like, well, I get, I think they have a plan, right? And the plans work so far, and it's against an easy schedule. But this is a well coached team on both sides of the ball. I think my question is because I agree they are incredibly well coached. They have a great plan. They stick to it. They know what they want to be. So my question becomes: Do they not think? that J.J. McCarthy has it in him. Do they think that they are not a better team if J.J. McCarthy has to take on some of the workload? That's my question, right? I know he was a five-star. I know all that, you know, all that stuff. But they they have done everything possible to avoid featuring him in any way, in any game. They didn't, they didn't feature him against Hawaii, right? Like, you feel like if they have all this faith in him, if they think that there's that card to play – they let him try it once. Well, that was his first start, to be fair. That was his first start against Hawaii, but go on. Sure, sure, but uh, fine. Hawaii, uh, UConn the next week, although, again, as we've mentioned, bowl-eligible UConn. So, you know, you, 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 gotta, you, can't, uh, you can't take too many chances when you're playing against a bowl-eligible team. But, uh, you know, like, it hasn't happened. They, they played the last couple of weeks. They played Nebraska, who 
is not very good defensively and he threw the ball 17 times and completed 47% of his passes. Actually, the week before that, they played Rutgers, which that was a game that got kind of hairy in the first half. Threw the ball 27 times, completed 48% of his passes. So, like, it doesn't feel like he's getting better. It feels like, I don't know, it just feels like the same. 14 touchdowns, two interceptions this year, 69% completion percentage, but as you said, under 50% the last two weeks. And I can just hear Jim Harbaugh saying, uh, why would you uh, why would you feature something before it needs to be featured? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you feature it when it needs to be featured? Why would I, why would you feature, why would you feature something if it's not featuring time? I just, I don't know. I don't understand the question of what, what, what will we feature until the featuring is, 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 is here? Well, well, Jim, uh, maybe it might be nice to know that the feature that you want to feature can be featured against a live defense when JJ McCarthy's allowed to be hit by other players. <laughs> I think uh, you'll find out when, uh, if and when it needs to be featured, uh, it'll be featured appropriately. I, I mean, honestly, and again, like, I, and I believe him. Like, I just, I would believe him because the last two seasons, I, I think you've got to believe what they're doing now, like th- th- they believe it. Is it good enough to beat Ohio state? Probably not. I mean, like I th- I'm going to pick Ohio state. To be- I think Ohio state is better than Michigan. I think Ohio state's more dynamic than Michigan. I think all-, all those things, I think Michigan will be able to run it on Ohio state. I think Ohio state will be able to throw it on Michigan. I think it'll be a matchup of what those two teams do. Well, Michigan's defense is really good. Ohio state's defense is much improved. I think it will be a very good game, but Ohio state's better. But is there a path? Absolutely. I mean, you can see the path. Everyone knows what the path to victory is for Michigan, at least against Ohio State, and then how far can it take him? So, okay, that's Michigan. Quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about another team that knows exactly who they are for good and for bad. We'll do USC next after this. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. So Shahan, this is this is I think a, an obviously vastly different but similar question in leaning into who you are again, Lincoln Riley. This USC team that you picked, I think you you very much thought they were a playoff contender before the year. I was skeptical. I thought it would take a year. Here they are. They're absolutely a playoff contender. They're playing UCLA and Notre Dame to end the season. They gave up a bunch of points. They gave up four touchdowns in the second half against Cal last a couple weeks ago, um, which was like a real problem and had them questioning them, their, their defense, Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator after doing that said he wanted to vomit after that game. Like they have real problems defensively and that is nothing new for a Lincoln Riley team. And the question is, will it hold them back? The one thing that has happened that we were, I think everybody was wondering about, and you and I certainly talked about earlier in the year, this was a team that forced a ton of turnovers early. They forced 14 turnovers in the first four games of the year. And in the last six games, they have forced six turnovers. So they are no longer a team that is winning, that is saving itself by forcing turnovers. They're winning anyway. And they're now winning with their offense because they're outscoring teams and winning in the 40s. Cal is not good. The team they beat two weeks ago. Cal is not good. Cal has not really scored on anybody. And Cal went out and had its way with that USC defense in the second half. And then last week, Cal came out and scored 10 against Oregon State after scoring 35 against USC. Can this formula work, right? Michigan has a formula. Is it good enough? 
USC has a formula. They've had some injuries at receiver. Jordan Addison is not fully back, but he should be back for UCLA. They had an injury in the offensive line that they're going to get their left guard back, and that'll change them again. They've had some injuries on defense. They have been battling some stuff. Mario Williams, their other good receiver, hasn't played. Other receivers have stepped up. There are some reasons here. Like, they've fought through some stuff. But the bottom line is, this is a good offense and a bad defense, and can they get to the playoff and or even do more than that with this Lincoln-Riley formula? You know, what's interesting is, you know, the USC, well, actually just Lincoln Riley teams have had a propensity to get up big and kind of just feel like they can just ride it out. And, you know, and, and I understand why teams do that. Some coaches don't want to run up scores. Some coaches feel like we don't want to give things away. Uh, in this Cal game, they were up 34-14 entering the fourth quarter and then kind of just stopped playing football. <laughs> and look, I, I know that you're USC and you're playing against Cal, who's very bad, but like you can't stop playing football at any point. You're just not a good enough team to stop playing football at any point, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, look, this team looks almost exactly like what I thought they were going to look like. Uh, they Which is Oklahoma, right? Which yeah, is Oklahoma. Well, well and I, I think uh, I think it's the worst versions of Oklahoma, but I think that they're probably playing in a, but this it's because it's year one. And I think that they're, generally speaking, playing in a worse conference than what most of those Big 12s were. And so I thought that they would have a chance to to come up quickly, and they have. Now, they have to play, again, at UCLA and versus Notre Dame over the next two weeks, so that's going to make things also a little hairy. But uh, but I think that ultimately, you know, look, with, with USC, this is what they were supposed to be. This is what they wanted to be in year one. They'll, they'll have time to try to like actually build a defensive system in there. Uh, I, I think one of the, you know, one of the things to look at is, yeah, this is, this is a very young unit. They're playing a lot of young players. They're playing a lot of transfers. And so I think that this is how they structured it. This is how they decided to do it. This is what they wanted to be uh, because, you know, you can't just completely flip a defense in a year, especially. So, now, the question is, again, like, it's two separate questions. One, can they win the Pac-12 this way? Two, can they make the playoff this way? And then three, also, can they compete for a national championship? Three is no. I mean, they cannot. I, I think that that's obvious. I think that that's clear. Um, You know, heading into this past week, I had them ranked as my third team in the Pac-12 behind UCLA and behind Oregon because I do feel like, again, you know, they haven't had the schedule to this point outside of the Utah game, which that's just a game, right? Like that's, that's a really tough game. Yeah. Great game. Like I don't think anybody should feel bad about USC because of how that game went, but now they play at number 12 UCLA. Then they play uh, number 20 Notre Dame. They're, they're going to have to, I think, finish really strong. This is kind of like, it, it's kind of like Michigan, uh, probably not to that extent. I think they played a slightly better schedule than that, but it's like Michigan where, uh, you know, you're kind of just waiting to see how it translates against some of the better teams. And so I think that they can win their last two games. I think they can win the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, but, it is going to be a skin of their teeth type uh, Lincoln Riley team. You know, this isn't 2017. Oklahoma was a really good team. Like they were good on both sides. They played pretty good defense. They had the best quarterback in America in Baker Mayfield. They obviously, they, that was a team that went on the road and beat Ohio state. That was a really good team all the way around. This is not that this is closer to the 2018 team where a lot of those defensive pieces had graduated, but Kyler Murray was so good that it didn't matter. And it's not necessarily, I think, that Caleb Williams is so good that it doesn't matter, but I think that it's that Caleb Williams is good 
And what, it, one piece with this, too, is that Jordan Addison hasn't been healthy the past couple of weeks. And you've noticed when you watch that team. So if he comes back healthy for this game, which I think he I think he played a little bit against Colorado. He just didn't get very many targets. 28 snaps, one catch. Yeah. And so, you know, if he's fully healthy against UCLA and Notre Dame, I think that that USC absolutely can can be really special. So they have enough pieces on offense. One, one thing to mention, though, is that Travis Dye, their fantastic running back, is out for the season. That's a lot to mention. Yeah, that's a lot to mention. And and so they're going to have to find a way to to replace him. They, You know, Austin Jones is back up a, a longtime USC player. Pretty good player, but. Not like that. I, I think that they're going to need Relique Brown to to come through, who's a true freshman, a five star, uh, who they really like. I, I think he's going to be somebody who needs to come through. They've got other guys, but nothing nothing like Travis Dye, who's been one of the best running backs in the Pac-12 over the past two years at Oregon and now at USC. So this is a team that I think can outscore teams, almost anybody. Like I think that they can keep up with anybody in the Pac-12 offensively. I think that they can outscore teams. They can't sit on games. That's the biggest thing. They can't sit on games. They can't just wait for them to end. I, I think that in some ways playing against better teams helps that because you don't have an opportunity to slow down when you're playing UCLA uh, as opposed to, you know, just kind of thinking that the game is over against Cal. But uh, but they, they have to stay on it. They have to they have to sit on games and they have to impose their will, which is something that I don't think they've done very well the last couple of weeks. So I do think the turnovers, Shahan, early in the year sort of like let them sort things out offensively. And then we've seen Caleb Williams and this offense carry this team as need be, I think, in the last several games. Four for through for 411 yards and five touchdowns against Arizona, 360 yards, four touchdowns against Cal, 268 and three touchdowns against Colorado. Um, we know. And again, this has been without like a healthy Jordan Addison. There is a lot left, but now they're without Travis Dye. So I, I do think there's, you know. Looking at Michigan, they're like borderline top 10 in EPA per game in both offense and defense. You know, this is just USC is an unbalanced team. I think they're first in EPA offensively and like 75th defensively. It's it's just a reality. I think, again, nobody is surprised by that. But I do think, Shahan, it's almost like we're grading USC on two scales right now. One is, hey, it's year one. You're, think of how you are, how good you are in year one when USC was terrible for the last couple of years and in complete disarray. My gosh, you only have one loss on the road by a point at Utah. You know, what a great season this has been. Yeah, you have some flaws, but boy, is the future bright. And then there's, well, that's great, but we're talking about right now and is right now good enough. And And probably like this version of this, we may as well talk about this a little bit right now. Like Dorian Thompson, Robinson, UCLA, like I think they have a chance to do some stuff against this USC defense this week. I am skeptical of USC getting through these next two weeks against UCLA and Notre Dame without taking a second loss. And then, you know, they beat UCLA. They'll be in the Pac-12 championship game. Obviously, the Notre Dame game is not conference but, you know, they're in position. I think that if they win out, they're in the playoff. I don't think there's any doubt about that because they're going to wind up with three really good wins if they if they win these next three. I just don't think they will because I do think their defensive flaws are too great. And I think either UCLA, I don't know if Notre Dame will or not, but either UCLA or somebody in the Pac-12 championship game, I just think will make this defense pay in a way that without Travis die offensively, Caleb Williams and that group won't be able to make up for it. Yeah, it's interesting. So 
they go on the road to play UCLA, uh, crazy home field advantage like UCLA always has. Uh, but I think that uh, that, that place is going to be filled with USC fans. <laughs> UCLA fans do not care. But I think that one thing is, you know, UCLA has really struggled defensively too. They are not a good defensive team at all. We saw that come to fruition in a couple different ways. I think that's obviously that Arizona game is pretty damning for them. And if this is a shootout, like, Give me the team that has the most guns, and that's clearly USC. So I, I feel like that is a good situation for USC. Notre Dame's going to be interesting, right? They've had moments where I think that their offense has started to come together, and defensively, this is by far the best team that USC will have played this season. I'm probably a little more worried about that game than I am about the UCLA game. And then we'll, we'll have to see what happens in the, uh, you know, who they get in the conference championship game. I think Oregon would be a pretty tough matchup for them. I think that they'd like to get a second crack at Utah after what happened, obviously, when they played in Salt Lake City. So it's tough, right? These three games in a row, especially, is tough for any team in college football to play three games like that in a row. Um, I'm going to be very curious how they handle it. I think we'll learn a lot about uh not just their physical makeup, but their mental makeup as well, whether they're able to go through that schedule. If these games were spread out, I'd pick USC individually to win all three games, but they're right in a row. There's body blows. You're going to be without Travis Dye. You got to hope that Jordan Addison's healthy. It's a lot to ask, but I I also don't think it's impossible. And when we look long-term, the idea that this feels so similar to the Oklahoma model, which was great offense, not great defense, good enough to win your conference, not really good enough to compete at the highest level. As you said, the, the, the time they competed the best was 2017 with that good defense in Baker Mayfield, and they should have beaten Georgia, and instead they lose uh, right in overtime in that semifinal, and then Georgia gets that path to the national title game, and then Alabama comes back and beats Georgia. But like that idea, right? they've got to have a better defense Lincoln Riley knows that, right? Like he's just trying to patch it together now the best he can. But I remain curious about the idea that he is really married to Alex Grinch. And I just still have real questions about Alex Grinch. I guess if they recruit better players, then maybe they'll be okay. But certainly here we are again. I mean, you have players talking after that Cal game about, you know, every time it feels like we should be in zone, we're in man, then we're in 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 zone what you know like they can't get in the right defensive scheme they're giving stuff up late that again they've had injuries but i i just do not know if like alex grinch is the defensive coordinator that lincoln riley should be wedded to there's a lot of comparisons between lincoln riley and ryan day happens it's gonna has happened gonna keep that happening and when ohio state's defense wasn't good enough ryan day was like well you know i'll he got rid of his friend Kerry Combs and went out and paid two million bucks for the best defensive coordinator on the market. I wonder if that and Jim Knowles and Jim Knowles has changed the Ohio State defense. They are much better. I wonder if a moment like that is coming for Lincoln Riley because the offense has always been good enough, but the team so far to get to the ultimate goal has not been. And while it's understandable this year, it's also another example of it. Yeah, it's the thing that's interesting to me is because I. I don't think Alex Grinch is bad. I don't think that it's just that. I think that part of it is having to defend on the other side of an offense, like what Lincoln Riley runs. I think that's always going to be a huge part of it. Um, that's true. You know, I, I think that another part, well, because I, I think that it's been easy in the past to point to talent. And the 2021 team at Oklahoma was 
a very flawed team, I think, on offense. And defensively, they were pretty good, right? And and then they sent a bunch of guys to the NFL draft. The question that I'm going to have about Alex Grinch is, you know, are, are you going to be able to recruit to the level defensively to where you feel like you can make up those gaps? Because I don't think that day in, day out, recruit by recruit, they were great defensively. And I think that, you know, the funny thing now is that they were, again, they were solid last year defensively at Oklahoma uh, under Alex Grinch. They are a disaster without him. Just a total unmitigated disaster without him. But at the same time, it, I, I did also feel like, look, I think that there have been moments where the Alex Grinch hire has worked out for Lincoln Riley. You know, I think that 2019 team, uh, he did, he had a big impact on that team defensively. I think that he's a big part of the reason that a team that wasn't all that good, in my opinion, in 2019 still made the playoff. But it felt like such a nice opportunity for a clean break with uh, with Lincoln Riley going to USC and having an open checkbook to hire anybody that he could have ever wanted. So it was a surprise to me to see them hang on to, to Alex Grinch. So, you know, all that to say, I, I do think that I do think that Alex Grinch will get an opportunity to try to build this defense. Right? I mean, they, they got the number one defensive back last year in Damani Jackson. He's going to be somebody who's going to be a major contributor for this program. They're going to be able to recruit in a different way. And we've already seen at USC than they were able to at Oklahoma. Like USC is USC. You can recruit at USC uh, because of their ties in Southern California. And Lincoln Riley is the biggest show in town now. So I think that uh, let's put it like this. Alex Grinch is on probation. This is this is a you know this is a team that's kind of been slapped together because that's what this USC team was always going to be with all the transfers and this this first year thing. I got to see I, I got to see signs that they're building something long term with this 2023 class with the 2023 season. It, it can't just be opportunistic football in a year or two. It has to be good football. Who would you take right now? Who do you who do you think has a better chance to do more this season, Michigan or USC? I, I think Michigan. I, I think Michigan's just further along in their development cycle. Now, the the thing is, I think that Michigan has the harder path. They have to beat Ohio State to to have a chance to get there. But I mean, USC has to win three really good games in a row as well. So it's that's not necessarily easy either. So I think I'd lean Michigan. Uh, I think that that's a team that can beat Ohio State. I think that that's the team that has the clearest pathway if something's break their way to competing for the national championship. And again, I mean, this is what year seven or eight of Jim Harbaugh. And uh, I, I can't remember what year we're in at this point. And eight. yeah, this is year eight of Jim Harbaugh. This is year one of Lincoln Riley. So frankly, if, if it was incredibly close, you know, it shouldn't be, is the point. It shouldn't be close well, with year eight of a very good coach versus year one of also, I think, a very good coach. So I think Michigan's further along. I think that their pathway is a little clearer. I think that their team's a little bit further along. I, I think that they're deeper. I think that they know their identity just a little bit better. And I think they're a more balanced team. But it is year six of LRU. And again, that's <laughs> the part of this is like, well, you know, it's the 
it's not like we don't know what this is. Now he's doing it at the new place, but I, but I do think, and again, I think they'll build on it. Just like Michigan had a great year last year and then built on it. This is a really good year one. Real, I mean, Nick Saban was terrible in year one. This is a really good, for example, this is a really good year one for USC, but you can still see the holes. So, um, yeah, that's, and that's not me. That's just reality. And I think Lincoln Riley, he knows exactly, again, both the, the thing in the end, I think Lincoln Riley and Jim Har, Harbaugh both know exactly what they want to do. And I think they both believe they can do it. I think Jim Harbaugh is showing it, and Lincoln Riley is getting there already. So uh, two interesting teams. We will talk – listen, next week is Ohio State-Michigan, and that's really big. And so we're going to talk more about that game a week from now. But I wanted to get this Michigan discussion in here now because I just think – I think we needed to get a handle on Michigan because in the end, I do think the Ohio State-Michigan game – for everything Michigan is, it really is about Ohio State. And it's, did Ohio State fix its flaws defensively enough? Will the run game still trip up Ohio State? Will they be able to throw it well enough? What will the weather be? Can Ryan Day avoid losing two in a row? It really is about Ohio State because Michigan Michigan showed what it was a year ago. So next week on this show, we'll dig into that. We'll dig into all the, the games that matter. But I, I wanted to make sure we gave Michigan the credit it deserves right now. And again, we flipped our shows this week. So if you want to be an Apple subscriber on Apple Podcasts, you get four bonus podcasts a month. And for a small subscription fee, 75 cents per episode, right? When you, when you, you know, it's pretty cheap, right? So on, on the bonus episode this week, which will be later in the week, we're going to do the 10 most important people in the playoff race so far. That's coaches of teams in the mix, players on teams in the mix. It could be coaches or players on teams that knocked out teams who otherwise would be in the mix. Shahan and I will do our rankings for that. That'll be the Apple bonus show. But a week from now, we'll certainly talk about Ohio State, Michigan. And I think a week from now on the Apple show, Shahan, I want to talk about the greatest rivalries in the playoff era. Because that is a different thing, because what the playoff has done is allowed opportunities for teams to meet multiple times on a national stage, which has made it really interesting. You don't only have to have your rival be down the road in your conference right now. So we'll rank the best rivalries in the playoff era on the Apple show a week from now. Hope you guys will join us on the bonus Apple show. But everybody who's listening, we appreciate you finding the College Football Survivor Show for Shahan J. Haraja. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.